Listen to every MLB game live. The deep left center field, it is high, it is far, it is gone. Stream minor league affiliates. The Midwest League home run leader. And watch the best baseball highlights and look-ins on MLB Big Inning. MLB at bat is your all-in-one live baseball subscription for only $3.99 per month. Deep left field, it's going to go. Alvarez ties the game. Subscribe to at bat within the MLB app today. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. From Stonewall to marriage equality, 50 years of pride. I'm Kyle McMorrow, and my guest is Evan Wolfson. Mr. Wolfson is an award-winning lawyer and the founder and president of Freedom to Marry, the organization that spearheaded the national strategy for winning marriage equality for same-sex couples here in the United States. In 2000, the National Law Journal named Evan one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America. And Time Magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Thank you. Thanks for having me. One other thing I should mention is that Newsweek dubbed you the godfather of gay marriage. Is that right? That is correct. They did do that. (laughs) (laughs) So what's the cooler title? 100 most influential people in the world or godfather of gay marriage? Godfather usually gets some laughs and uh, 100 most influential usually gets gasps. So it depends on what mood I'm in. (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. So I want to start uh, in the early stages, I guess, when you were considering law and you wanted to be a lawyer. What was um, the thought process behind that? Well, I was always the kind of kid who people always said, oh, you should be a lawyer. You know, I was always a little argumentative, always very verbal, always wanting to talk about things, very into history, very into politics, very into government. I followed the news and had a lot of opinions. Our family was a very conversational family. So just from an early age, I knew I wanted to I knew I wanted to have an impact. I knew I wanted to make a difference. And for me, that meant politics. I wanted to go into politics. My great passion was history. It's been a lifelong love. I always read history. I did as a kid. I do now. So I always wanted to make a difference. And it seemed like law would be a good stepping stone, really, to politics. Though I did also enjoy, as a kid, watching TV shows about lawyers and uh, seeing people argue and make cases and so on. Those courtroom scenes? Exactly. So that was really it. But it wasn't really law per se to be a lawyer. It was law as a way of engaging in government and politics and making a difference. Gotcha. Now, that's the thought process behind you being a lawyer. When did you say gay rights is something that I really want to be involved in and and here's how I can help? Well, certainly once I acknowledge to myself that I am gay and uh, really started thinking about what do I do about it? How do I make a life and how do I make a difference? Uh, It became clear that I wanted to be involved in gay rights. Again, gay rights was not really and still isn't the only thing I care about. It really was, again, about helping America live up to its promise, fulfilling human rights for all people, making a better world. But being gay, obviously a big part of that, uh, as important to me, was to end the oppression of gay people. So a lot of it was from your personal life then, just just what you were going through at the time, and that's how maybe a springboard? Yeah, I certainly came to gay rights because I'm gay. Uh, Now, you know, at the same time, I've also worked on racial justice. I've also worked on women's empowerment. I've also worked on human rights in other countries and so on, where I'm not as personally directly affected. So it's that's not the only factor, but I would say the gay rights piece definitely came about because I was gay. Now, one thing, um, I guess, early on in, in your profession was when you were still at Harvard Law, you wrote a thesis on the freedom to marry. Yes. In 1983? That's right. How outrageous of a concept was that back in 83? 
I don't think it was outrageous. I, I certainly was not the first person to think of the idea of gay people getting married. What I was writing about as a student, in part, was the first wave of marriage litigation in which couples, in the immediate aftermath of Stonewall, which obviously we celebrate the 50th anniversary of, uh, and we talk about as the beginning of the modern gay rights movement, although that's a little bit of a, you know artificial, but it was an important benchmark. Immediately after Stonewall, couples all across the country began seeking the freedom to marry. There were cases uh, across the country, one of which even reached the Supreme Court. All the all those cases were rubber stamped away. The courts all said no. The Supreme Court didn't even bother to write an opinion. It wrote one sentence dismissing this as having no federal constitutional claim. So 10 years later or so, I was writing about this as a student. And I decided that this was something important to write about. Now, it, although it wasn't out, an outrageous idea or a new idea, it was definitely an idea that, that at that point few people were championing. And so I was really taking it up again and saying that even we should not take that no for an answer, that marriage was important, we should fight for it, we should work for it, and that claiming the vocabulary of marriage would be claiming in a language, uh, a vocabulary of connection that would help non-gay people better understand who gay people are. It would be an engine of transformation. So that fighting for marriage, I argue, was not just a goal, it was a strategy. When I tried to have advisors on the faculty, you know, you have to have a faculty advisor, uh, and tried to get some of my professors to, to advise the paper, I had a very hard time. So although it wasn't an outrageous topic, it wasn't a new topic, most of the people I went to didn't think it was an important topic. They either saw it as the, the wrong idea, there was some ideological resistance to the idea of gay people seeking the freedom to marry, or they thought it was kind of a trivial thing. What about your peers? Because they were your, more your age, maybe did you find more people to relate to there? I think people thought it was, you know, a curious topic. Uh, nobody said it was a terrible topic, but nobody either thought it was an important topic. You know, it wasn't like anybody was saying, yes, we absolutely should do this, or yes, this is something that should have happened, or whatever. It was just sort of, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Now, the early 80s, because um, I, so I was born in 86, so Thanks. the early <laughs> the early eighties, uh, it seemed like that was a time when uh, a lot a lot was happening, especially in the LGBT community. The Hetrick Martin Institute was uh, late seventy seventy nine. Harvey Milk School was about to come on. You were writing your thesis at that time. So, at what point did you start to see maybe people's opinions change? The tide start to change in in your life. Was it in that sort of eighties period? Well, definitely the 80s was an important chapter, certainly for me, in my advocacy for the freedom to marry. As I said, there was the first wave in the early 70s, and then despite the best efforts of some of those pioneering couples and a few advocates, they all failed. It really didn't go anywhere. I wrote my paper in 1983, and then I graduated and came to New York and began working my day job as a prosecutor. And in the evenings and weekends, I was volunteering for Lambda Legal, one of the preeminent legal groups in the, in the uh, and advocacy groups in the gay rights movement. And I began urging that we have a strategy for fighting for marriage and that we work out a plan and we begin building toward it. And I met with a lot of resistance from the community, from Lambda Legal and many of the other advocates that I was working with and with whom I became friends and was friends. But as friends, we were fighting over this. And there were really two different camps of resistance within the, within the movement, within the community. One was what you could call ideological. And there were really two strands in there. There were some people who 
believed that marriage was a bad goal. We should not be fighting for marriage. They argue that marriage is has a history that's patriarchal or oppressive or discriminatory or that it's a failed institution, people people are divorcing, etc., that it was not a goal we should fight for. Then there were others amongst friends and colleagues in this small band of people battling uh, for gay rights at that point who argued that we should not be fighting for marriage because as gay people we should not be trying to assimilate. We should be liberating. We should be not trying to join institutions like marriage, we should be redefining them, we should be changing them, or we should not enter at all. We should live more of an outlaw life, free from state involvement. Then there were others who may or may not have had any of that ideological resistance, but who had what you could call strategic resistance. They believed that fighting for marriage would be too difficult it was premature, it was dangerous, it would trigger even more of an attack. And you have to remember to your question that at this point in the 1980s, we were under tremendous siege. You know, those of us, the, this little small band of warriors in the, the then very small gay rights movement and the broader gay rights community were under ferocious assault. We were under attack from the Reagan administration and a really hostile uh, administration joined with a now resurgent religious right wing that had come into power and had tremendous clout and was harassing, discriminated against, smearing, slandering, and really at some points calling for death for gay people. And on top of that, we had, of course, the Holocaust of AIDS. We were dealing with this nightmare that we had entered into, and we would have the experience as, as gay people of walking down the street as if we were in a war. You know, our friends were dying. We were walking from one death to care for another person who was ill to go to fight against the discrimination. And our friends and, and neighbors and, and, and fellow citizens who were not gay could be walking on the same street completely unaware there was anything going on at all. So it was, you know, a very difficult, horrible, terrible time. And therefore, though I didn't agree with my friends and colleagues about the idea that we shouldn't nevertheless fight for what we wanted, I can understand how they saw it was going to be a difficult and maybe badly timed fight. So I really spent the 1980s arguing with friends and colleagues and the community and some a little bit the public, but mostly trying to make this essentially internal case that we really needed to fight for the freedom to marry. And that changed then in the 1990s. You mentioned into the 90s and, and one of maybe the more significant things to happen um, in your career was Hawaii. And um, you served as co-counsel in the Hawaii marriage case that launched the ongoing global freedom to marry conversation. Is, is that fair? Yes, that's exactly right. And, you know, I would like to say that all my work during the 1980s, the brilliance of my 1983 thesis and my tenacious nagging and arguing for the next 10 years was what set the stage for winning marriage in the 90s. But that's not what happened. What happened was I did all of that work, but... It was really when the Hawaii case, which came out of the second wave of marriage litigation, remember the first wave was in the immediate aftermath of Stonewall, basically about 20 years later, the very late 80s, early 90s, another group of couples who wanted to get married and they didn't know anything about my paper or the arguments or the debates within the community or the theory. They wanted to get married. They were in love and they wanted to get married. And they began filing cases. And one of those, most importantly, was the Hawaii case. This case uh, had the, caused the 
What was different about the Hawaii case was when it went to a court for the first time, we found a court that was willing to give us our day in court, that didn't just throw us out. And when on May 5th, 1993, the Hawaii Supreme Court ruled that marriage is important, that to be excluded from it is at least presumptively discriminatory, and therefore they were not going to throw these couples out of court. They were going to give them, they weren't going to hand them marriage yet, but they were going to order that the trial court conduct a real trial, that there actually be an opportunity where the state had to come in and show a reason or stop discriminating. And we were going to get a chance to show that there is no good reason. That's what changed everything. How big was that moment for you? It, it was epic. I mean, I wrote at the time, this was the tectonic shift. The world just moved. Everything has changed. No matter what you thought before, patriarchal, harass, bad, dangerous, ill-timed, uh, premature, etc. The world had just changed. We were now going to have this day in court and nothing would be the same. I argued we, we could win this. And in any case, the engagement over it was not just going to be about one little case. It was not just going to be about a faraway state of Hawaii. This was going to change everything. And fortunately, at that point, although my re- tenacious and relentless nagging of the previous decade had not changed everybody, it did put me in position to be able to capture the wave that now came from Hawaii and allowed me to now step forward and get a critical mass of advocates to join and to authorize me to begin building the kind of campaign that was necessary, not just to win one court case in Hawaii, but to win the discussion, to win the debate, to win the conversation, to win the movement, to win the epic transformation that we had in store. And that's what I then devoted the rest of my time to doing. So that's all you really needed was that day in court. Really, You were just waiting on that moment. Yeah, I always believe that if we could get people to talk about this, if we could engage them and then engage them tenaciously, persistently, with information, with values, with our, our stories, with the hearts and minds, with the connection, if we had the chance to make our case over enough time, we would, we would win. And that's what Hawaii gave us the opportunity to do. And that's why, even though ultimately we didn't prevail at the end in Hawaii, the Hawaii case over the course of the 90s really did change everything and was the major turning point that set us on the pathway that we still had to march, but it put us on the pathway to winning the Freedom to Marry in 2015. Yeah, and and I want to get to 2015, but did you always, how long did you know the steps that needed to be taken um, your strategy, h- how you wanted to attack it. I mean, was this years in the making or um, does this even go back to when you were in Harvard Law? I mean, how mm-hmm. far does this go back? So the strategy was always pretty clear, although I got better you know, with, with help from colleagues and bouncing it around with some key friends and, and in all these endless arguments. I got better at articulating and making it really kind of clear and, and repeatable and embraceable, and that was important. But the strategy was always pretty clear. Of course, the work that was needed continued to evolve. I mean, we knew what we needed to do, but how we would do it and when we would do it and where we could do it and putting together the the campaign and the partnerships and the enlisting people and so on, that obviously evolved significantly. And there were many, many ups and downs and twists and turns in the road between even that Hawaii period of the 1990s and you know 20 years later being able to win in uh, in the United States as a whole but the strategy was pretty clear from the get-go uh, and so the articulation of it was important and now when I'm asked to share the lessons from the campaign which is really what I spend most of my time doing now 
I've distilled, one of the lessons I've distilled is the importance of what I call the ladder of clarity. And I talk about how we did pretty well on this ladder of clarity. And so I encourage other movements, other causes, other activists, and other countries to think clearly about the work they're doing in terms of this ladder of clarity. And the ladder of clarity says, start with your top rung. Where do you want to go? What is winning? Clarity of goal. We articulated that goal very clearly. It was winning marriage. Now, that means choosing a goal. You know, winning marriage is not the entirety of everything I wanted as an activist. It was not certainly not the entirety of everything the broader LGBT movement is about. It was not the only thing important, but it was something. It was something specific and concrete that could be measured and defined and that we could rally people around, winning the freedom to marry. Now, I was able to choose that goal because I believed, as I said earlier, that winning marriage was not just going to be a goal. It was going to be a way of transforming people, a strategy that would enable us to win on all our goals, to move forward. But clarity of goal is that top rung on the ladder of clarity. From there, you go to clarity of strategy. What do you need to do in order to win? And as I said, with the Freedom to Marry work, we were pretty clear about what the strategy was, and I'll come to that in a moment. Just to finish the latter, we had clarity of vehicles. What do you need to do in order to drive your strategy? And we had different programs and work based on each piece of what our strategy required us to do. And then clarity of action steps, the fourth rung. What are you asking individuals to do? What are you asking partners to do? What are you asking other organizations, allies, politicians to do so they can bring their pieces to the work required by the strategy? And so in all four rungs of this ladder of clarity, as I now present it, we did pretty well. Yeah, I would say so. So, so what was the strategy? The strategy for winning the freedom to marry, pretty much from the get-go, articulated clearer and clearer as we went along and then repeated endlessly. We had it on our website. It wasn't a secret. We wanted people to know what the strategy was so they could see the pathway and be inspired to join us. We said we were going to win the freedom to marry in the United States despite the Supreme Court having said no in 1972. We said the way we are going to win is by persuading the Supreme Court to do right what it had done wrong. Now, obviously, litigation is an important part of that. You don't get to the Supreme Court without, obviously, litigation. Sure. But litigation, we now know from 1972 and other examples, is not enough. So what we argued was, while we had to have litigation, we had to follow a multi-methodology approach of engaging not just litigation, but lobbying, public education, direct action, protest and demonstrations, um, personal persuasion, conversations, electoral work, fundraising. We had to blend those in service of the strategy that we called the Roadmap to Victory. The Roadmap to Victory said, we are going to persuade the Supreme Court to bring the country to national resolution. We're gonna win across the entire country by working on three tracks. The three tracks were, number one, and these were not, by the way, sequential. They were synergistic. They were reinforcing each other all at the same time. Okay. We were going to, one, build a critical mass of states. We needed to have some number of states where gay people could marry. We were not going to be able to go from zero, where we were, to, to national. We needed to build a critical mass of states. Alongside that, number two, we had to build a critical mass of public support. We initially framed this as build a majority. Once we actually hit the majority, we then said grow the majority. We had to get to enough public support that the court would feel that the country was ready and that they could do this. So critical mass of states, 
critical mass of public support. And the third track was to tackle and end the federal discrimination, the so-called Defensive Marriage Act, that had been piled on top of the discrimination during while I was in court in the courtroom in Hawaii in the 1990s. In 1996, litigating for the freedom to marry, Congress passed the so-called Defensive Marriage Act, a federal law adding an additional layer of discrimination on top. So we said we were going to tackle that as well. And our view was that by working on these three tracks, we would create the climate in which the Supreme Court ultimately could be persuaded to do the right thing, that this climate creation was going to be the necessary precondition for the success of the litigation. How much easier was that made uh, in... 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15, with social media, with Facebook. I mean, you didn't have that available to you in the early 90s. So did that play a, a key role in, in everything? You know, social media, of course, is the world in which we live now and an incredibly important technology and really just almost it has changed the way we all live. But we did actually manage without it. You know, I mean, hard as it is even for someone like me to remember, uh, having lived through the transition, I'm sure for people who came in later, it's even harder to imagine what is the world without it because you could become so used to it. But we did manage to organize things, persuade people, reach others, make our case, et cetera, um, without social media in the same way that Bayard Rustin and his team were able to organize the epic March on Washington, the I Have a Dream speech march, uh, without the benefit of, of faxes. You know, People manage with the technology they have. Having said that, we made great use, and I would say Freedom to Marry was a pretty successful early adapter. No, by the way, no, no particular thanks to me, but thanks to my incredible team at Freedom to Marry, uh, who included some very young, smart, uh, adept, savvy digital people who were really good at figuring out how we could use uh, web strategies, email strategies, Facebook, et cetera, to not only to deliver our own message and to engage in the all-important conversation with the American people coming out of essentially from us, but we also built basically the digital back end of many of the states, uh, state organizations and state partners and state campaigns that were essential building blocks in the strategy, we were able to provide some central support and cohesion to the use of those technologies at the service of our state partners that helped build them and also make the case locally and effectively in and, and, and still in furtherance of a national message and a national strategy. Okay. So, I would say social media certainly was important. It became a very important avenue on which we proceeded, but I wouldn't say it was due to social media because right. had we not had social media, we would have done it the old-fashioned way. <laughs> <laughs> Going up against the Supreme Court, did you ever feel the pressure? Did you ever doubt yourself? Was there ever times where it, it maybe got too much for you to handle despite your track record being what it is? Well, uh, thank you for the compliments about my track record. You know, you have to remember that as a lawyer, I really was most famous for the cases I lost. So um, you can argue <laughs> that how you will. Of course, I did look at it as it wasn't really about the case. It was about the cause. And for example, when I argued in the Supreme Court on the Boy Scouts case, and and we lost five to four, having won unanimously in the New Jersey Supreme Court previously, I, I came out that day and said, we may have lost this case, but we are winning the cause. And surely enough, the conversation that the case was a vehicle for stoking 
prompted a real change of hearts and minds, even amongst members of the Boy Scouts who pressured their own organization to change its discriminatory policy as it has now done in the intervening years. So to me, as a lawyer, the law, again, was a tool. And the Supreme Court, yes, was certainly the place where we hoped we would deliver the final victory. But we saw that as the culmination of all the work. The case we were making was not just a case to the Supreme Court. 2015, and maybe even prior to uh, your work with Freedom to Marry, do you, uh, and I don't want to focus too much on the negatives, but did you face a lot of resistance? Did, Did you get a lot of mail, emails about, you know, you shouldn't be doing this? Not everybody obviously is in your mindset there's a it's a big country and even a big world so did you did you go through a lot of that you know one of my rules of activism and really rules of life is you don't need every you need enough so it's really not about expecting that everybody is just going to roll over and agree with you or drop their resistance and immediately hail you as the savior or embrace what you uh, are believe or reject what they used to think and come around that's not that's not the way life works and it's not what you need we didn't need everybody we needed enough we needed to persuade enough we needed to mobilize enough and we needed to stick with it and get the job done and then others would continue to come to our side even after we won which is exactly what has happened so yes we had obviously tremendous resistance and as i said earlier not just resistance from the opponents, not just resistance from the reachable public we hadn't yet reached, but ultimately were able to persuade, we had resistance from our friends, our, 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 our you know, politicians who were allies but who didn't want to be pushed to do something that they viewed as too difficult. We had resistance from gay people who either worked with those politicians or were championing other causes or had a, who had other strategies or other goals and thought this was getting in the way or was too difficult or should be postponed or, or what have you. We had resistance from people who were just nervous and uh, wanted to go slower or, or, or not do it at all. Um, so, yes, there was all kinds of resistance at, you know, at all times, but I tend to focus on the positive, not the negative. I can be cranky and irritable, but as a professional, I do try to focus on the pathway, not the problem, and that's what kept me going. And I also saw that people were moving. And one of the things I should say that was a key element of success was what I had thought was going to happen, which was that most people are capable of fairness, and they are capable, in Lincoln's words, of thinking anew. And if we engage them with what they needed and help them rise to fairness, they, they would do it. And it is a tribute to the American people that people went from 27% support when I was with my non-gay co-counsel doing the Hawaii case in 1990s to when we stood before the Supreme Court, 63%. We had grown that majority, and that reflects people's changing their minds. People's, Which is a huge number, 27 to 63. It, it is an epic shift in, in, a, in a historically short period of time. Now, people you know, tend to say, oh, wow, it happened overnight. Well, it didn't happen overnight. It took more than four decades. But once we were able to get the requisite case in front of the requisite number of people, the requisite number of times over the requisite amount of time, so cumulatively, at the end, it did move very quickly. It did accelerate. That support grew. The From 1996 to 2015, that's 19 years. In 19 years, we went from 27% to 63%. And, and since we won, support has continued to grow. The American people have seen with their own eyes, this is good, not bad. People are helped, not hurt. 
families are, are strengthened. What was that day like um, when the Supreme Court made the ruling um, for you and your team? 5-4, right? Supreme yes, 5-4. What was that? Can you put it into words? Yeah, absolutely. So day after day, we would gather in this co- in the conference room and wait for 10 o'clock and the court to come and start checking our phones and devices and laptops and so on uh, to get the news from the people on the ground. And each day, in a succession of days in June, we would say, oh, not today. Okay, back to work, back to work. Well, finally, the day arrived that we kind of thought was going to be the day, although nobody really knew, but it was June 26, 2015, which was the day the Supreme Court had handed down two other major gay rights cases in June June 26, 2003 and uh, June 26, 2013. So it felt like our you know karma day um, and the hopeful day that we were going to win. And sure enough, we... we saw that they were about to rule on marriage. So we were all paused already. Everybody's checking their devices. And even though I had, as I mentioned, these hotshot, young, uh, digitally talented staff uh, staffers and colleagues and friends on my team, I was the one who actually saw it first on my, on my iPhone. And I said, oh my God, the Supreme Court strikes down marriage bans. We won. And then I paused for a moment, kind of f- afraid, because I knew when I had said it, people would take it very seriously, but I, I wasn't sure because it had only come across a device. But then everybody began seeing it, and so we all cheered. We had, because this was now the eighth day in a row that we had gathered, we now finally had remembered to bring champagne. We quickly popped open the champagne, we did a quick toast, and then everybody ran to their battle stations to do the jobs that we had now drilled overdoing again and again. Some had to push it out on social media, some had to push out a press release, some had to answer questions from reporters. My job, as the only lawyer on Freedom to Marry staff, was to read the opinion. So I went back to my office and I began scrolling through the opinion and I found myself crying uh, very unexpectedly. And I thought at the time that the reason I was crying was because uh, every paragraph I would read would remind me of some chapter in this fight, you know, somebody I'd argued with, somebody I'd worked with, somebody who might have died that I used to know that we had talked about this particular piece or point. I cried because it reminded me of the paper I wrote as a student. That, you know, there was just the the same arguments, the same language now finally had found their way into the Supreme Court's ruling and and this victory. And so I was really overcome by that that wave of memory and emotion. I don't want to cut your career short, but in that moment, (laughs) (laughs) but in that moment, did you say, you know what, like my life's goal or my my big career moment is finally done, like I've won now I can move on to the next chapter or the next... Did you have that feeling at all? Well, I, you know, I certainly had, and I guess to some extent still have, the the feeling that I may never be so lucky as to be part of something so big and specific again, which is obviously not to say that everything's done and not to say that I can't keep doing good stuff, and I, I, I am trying to do that. But whether lightning will ever strike in this kind of way with a 32-year life chapter behind it. You know, you only get so many 32-year chapters of life, so it's it's hard to know whether I'm really going to get another one or not. Well, Mr. Evan Wilson, I, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Glad you. to be part of it. And this is a big anniversary year, and the work is not done. Relive the history, hear the stories, and be inspired. From Stonewall to marriage equality, 50 years of pride at 1010wins.com slash pride. I'm Kyle McMorrow.